From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. A figure like Richard Spencer, you know, he has a kind of vision of the future. It's all about sort of giving young white men a sense of pride and so on. And that that kind of stuff is powerful for a reason. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest this week is Angela Nagel, who is the author of a really, really fascinating and very well-timed new book called Kill All Normies. Uh, it, it's a book she began doing a, a PhD thesis in anti-feminist communities online. And, and over time, it began to be a thesis and a, and a very deeply researched and reported look into what became the alt-right. She was following it when it was a collection of fractured online communities centered around places like 4chan, developing their own aesthetic, built around sort of transgressionism and pushing boundaries and striking back at PC culture. And so she watched it and tracked it as it became something that later seemed to help power Donald Trump's rise to the presidency, seemed to create an ideology that that is ascendant and ultimately developed a physical presence uh, and a violent presence in Charlottesville. So this is a discussion about her book, about the alt-right, about what it is and where it's going, what happened to it in Charlottesville, which she has tracked a a real crack up in it. It's a discussion also about her argument that that mainstream liberal culture helped create the alt-right, that PC culture has gone too far, that liberals have focused too much on identity and not enough on economics. We talk about all that in, in the discussion. And it's also a discussion, I think, about ways in which the internet has made us bad people, um, but also reflects really serious tensions and conflicts that are going on in our society. I think it's easy sometimes to look at the internet and imagine these philosophies and these fractures and these factions springing fully formed. They're just some kind of internal creation of Twitter. And and, and they're not. We, we talk about this a, a bunch in the podcast, but we are a country undergoing massive demographic change, very real shifts in power and status and representation. And all of that ha- has downstream consequences and manifestations um, that, that I think now we're at least in part calling this war between the the online alt-right and, and PC culture. But but I think it's a lot more than that. 
And I think this podcast is a, is a good guide to why. Um, as always, a couple quick plugs. In the next few months, Vox is going to be starting what will be by far our most ambitious audio project yet, a daily explainer podcast. If you're a podcast producer or a host and you believe like you are into Vox's mission to explain the news and you have ideas of how to do it here, we want to hear from you. Check out voxmedia.com careers. Again, voxmedia.com careers. We have listings for, for a host, for an executive producer. Please check out my other podcast, Weeds, where we talk policy worldly, where my colleagues talk foreign affairs, and I think you're interesting by Todd Vanderwoof. These are all great podcasts. I am certain you will love them. Please email me your guest suggestions at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Um, rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends about it. Uh, spread the podcast. I'm always grateful when you do. All that said, here is Angela Nagel. Angela Nagel, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So your book on on this is fantastic. I, I read it recently, and, and I wanted to begin before the alt-right because you do a great job tracing what becomes the alt-right in, in years before it ever had that name. So maybe let's start with 4chan when you began studying it. What is that? Uh, 4chan is basically um, an anonymous messaging board, and it started off in anime fan culture. And of course, anime fan culture ended up, you know, it, it continued to be very much a part of everything that came from 4chan going right into the alt-right. And essentially, it kind of developed a culture of posting the kind of nastiest thing possible. Uh, the fact that everyone was anonymous meant that it had a kind of a mischievous culture and style, and, you know, which which kind of eventually turned into something quite dark because the content of it was... Uh, was so kind of horrifying. And because it was very much about breaking taboos, they felt the, the, the big liberal taboos were race and gender and things like that. So that's kind of the way it ended up being directed uh, in that kind of um, more recognizably far-right way. You have this line in the book where you say, what we now call the alt-right is this collection of lots of separate tendencies that grew semi-independently, but which were joined under the banner of a bursting forth of anti-PC cultural politics. What what were the different streams? So, so 4chan is a gathering place and, and sort of creates the aesthetic, but what would you say are the different tributaries, the different groups that became what we now think of as the alt-right? Well, for example, now the, the the section of all of these groups that that has sort of very much come to the fore, which would be people around Richard Spencer, the National Policy Institute, to a lesser extent, maybe American Renaissance, who describe themselves as a white advocacy group, they're kind of, in a way, an older generation of the far right. Uh, and of course, Richard Spencer was the one who gave, uh, who who came up with the term um, alt right. But then you also had a, a much younger kind of cohort of gamers and uh, pickup artists and men's rights activists. I mean, it's a kind of a silly term because the, the, they don't spend that much time on, you know, men's issues or or men's rights, but but certainly a kind of a militant anti-feminist uh, online culture. You'll see, for example, the shared kind of red pill metaphor uh, across some of those. So Reddit's the red pill was um, an anti-feminist kind of a, a men's rights forum. And at the same time, the old right were using the, exactly the same term being red-pilled, talking about what their red-pill moment was and so on, to talk about their uh, racial awareness. Is there a difference between alt-right and white supremacists? There, there's been a movement uh, among some folks to say you shouldn't use the term alt-right at all. That's just a rebranding of, of white supremacists. Do you think those two things are, are the same or do you think there's a meaningful difference that people should be attuned to? 
I think uh, pretty much up until Charlottesville, I would have very much uh, made the case for uh, there being a difference because of the fact that that far right ideas were so completely uh, fused with kind of countercultural aesthetics and sort of geeky gamer hacker kind of uh, cultures and things like that. I mean, that was not uh, something that was typical of the far right. But what we saw in Charlottesville was was pretty much, uh, you know, it was standard far right stuff. So I think what has happened is because all of these groups were were uh, briefly brought together by Trump and um, things like that, uh, uh, and people started noticing the connections between them all, that quickly fell apart because um in many cases they the, the the differences became obvious and the the group that have now come to the fore are recognizably just far right so i would be fine with that i would be fine with them being called far right rather than alt right at this point but i i i think that when it was still such a novel kind of mixture of different online cultures i think you could have made the case then that 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 alt right was a meaningful term but do you, what do you think about the question of whether the all right is just another term for white supremacy? Do you think that do you think that it is more diverse than that? I think that it certainly was, but um, the group that were most visible at Charlottesville, I think it is fair to call them just the far right, and to say let's not call them the alt right, let's call them the far right. Um, I mean, but as it was developing, I I would have been more inclined to call the you know, any aspect of it alt-right um, because of the fact that um, I suppose it wasn't coming from the typical places that we tend to find the far right. So now we see, you know, in Charlottesville, this coming together of actually pretty typical kind of groups of people that you would expect, the militia movement and things like that. That really wasn't how it was before. The alt-right was a term that you know, is messy because nobody, it's unclear who gets to say what exactly it means. Um, but how it was generally used uh, was it, it in reference to all of these different subcultures. One, one of the threads of the book that has been really helpful for me in thinking through what, what I've been seeing the last couple of years and, and what we're seeing now is your focus on the aesthetics of, of the alt-right. And, and you write that the alt-right has more in common with the 1968 left slogan, that it is forbidden to forbid, than it does with anything most people recognize as part of any traditionalist, right? Can you talk a bit about how the alt-right developed its aesthetics and particularly about the, the role of transgression in it? Yeah, well, I kind of, you know, was looking at these cultures emerging kind of early on. And one thing I kind of noticed was that the way in which they're being written about was, at the time, a bit more positive than I kind of felt it should be. So, you know, 4chan, for example, was always being described as, you know, a, a counterculture to mainstream media and counterhegemonic and all these kind of terms that I recognize, particularly in academia. And, and so I got to thinking, like, why is it that, you know, say, if you had just sort of right of center kind of or standard views, they would not be described in the same flattering kind of terms as something like these cultures, which were so obviously dehumanizing and sort of horrible very early on. And I think it is because people recognized that they they reminded people of a kind of a punk aesthetic or a something countercultural. And there is a tendency, I think, uh, which I kind of argue in the book, to 
assume that if something is subcultural or countercultural, if it runs counter to the mainstream, that it must be in some way progressive. And so in some ways, people did not spot uh, the very dark sort of things that were emerging in places like 4chan until very late uh, in, in, in its kind of development for that reason. Um, so essentially, I mean, the 4chan thing is that, uh, you know, they're not like sort of conservatives. They're, they, they, they very much reject conservatism. Um, they're very much, they, they, they came to far right ideas, not through kind of traditionalist politics, but through the fun of transgressing kind of liberal sensibilities. And you could say it's a kind of a punk sensibility because it, th- that was very much where it came from. It was very much about trolling. It was very much about being irreverent, about not respecting any boundaries or taboos, breaking every taboo as, as much and as often as you can. Um, and that was very much the sensibility uh, rather than anything that was coming from a traditional right that we recognize that, you know, we might associate with Edmund Burke or whoever. But this is what's so weird about it in part. And, and you see this in Trump too, I think, where you have this movement that has a completely anti-traditionalist style yoked to explicitly ideological traditionalist ends. I mean, Donald Trump could not lead a less personally Christian lifestyle um, if he yeah. were trying, but he'll walk around talking about how, you know, he's running to, to for the evangelicals and he loves the evangelicals and they love him and, and this is a nation under God. And, and similarly, you talk in, in the book, and, and this is true, I think, in all right writing more generally, that it often frames itself at the high levels as a defense of Western European Christian civilization. But its entire style is very, very... It's not biblical, as, I, as I've tended to understand it. How does that, uh, how does that friction get worked out? Well, I think particularly in the culture of 4chan, they're simultaneously really taboo-breaking and disgusting and, you know, all that stuff, and kind of puritanical. Uh, I almost think sometimes that, that that they spent so much time in their own forums that it sort of, it made them... Um, much it made it gave them a much more bleak vision of the world than uh, most people would have for example they would simultaneously watch sort of really uh, violent porn and post really violent porn and then also say oh you know men are being emasculated by all the porn they watch and they're you know not making babies and so on um it do, in a way it it seems like it doesn't make sense but it actually kind of does because um in a way, they're rejecting something that they are engaging in themselves. Uh, so part of it is almost like a nihilistic thing, like there's no point in trying to um, make anything better because the world is is destroyed anyway. But then they, they, there's this puritanical kind of repulsion from their own culture. And so, I mean, Trump is such a perfect uh figurehead for them because as you say I mean he wasn't a typical conservative like I think it's very obvious when Trump means something and when he doesn't right like the speeches he gave after Charlottesville it's very obvious he meant the last one Mm -hmm. and the really robotic one he was reading uh, off the queue he he didn't mean at all Um, similarly I don't believe for a second that Trump is uh, serious about you know, evangelical Christianity or abortion or anything like that. I I think that's just a a tactic or was just a tactic to get votes. Um, And um, 
but you know because as you say he's not his own life is, is is not like that you know and and actually if you listen to genuine conservatives uh they tended to be quite disgusted by him actually uh so for example I, a conservative I often read Peter Hitchens who's a the brother of Christopher uh UK based um columnist you know he he immediately recognized uh, he Trump uh, as somebody who didn't have any respect for anyone who was a kind of uh who who was going to bring shame upon the kind of uh electoral system and you know he just had very negative things to say about him and you could immediately tell kind of genuine conservatives the national review as well uh, went against trump for that reason because they were able to spot that something you you just said that that i want to focus on is super interesting is the idea that there's almost something self-loathing or, or self-referential in the politics here that you're you're looking at a lot of people who are participating in immersed in what is on some level a, a breakdown of mores a breakdown of culture a feeling of pointlessness and they develop a politics that is simultaneously the embodiment of that and the reaction to it a, a sort of veneration of and like an ancestral different you know more pure in a lot of different ways racially etc politics, even as they themselves are acting in ways that would have been completely disgusting <laughs> to to the kinds of folks that, that they're bringing up. I mean, you mentioned this in, in the book where you talk about Nietzsche uh, having been um, the opposite in his personal life of the kind of ubermensch things he's now understood to represent. That seems very brittle to me. And maybe that's something we saw mm. in Charlottesville, but, but it, it seems if that's your politics— that it very quickly is going to ask things of you that you cannot represent, that you're not going to be comfortable implementing yourself. It, it doesn't, it's not obvious to me how far a politics built like that can go. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think the best example of that um, kind of contradiction is uh, Sam Hyde, who who is uh, like called an alt-right comedian, and he's about as far right these days as you can get. Sam Hyde um, had a show on Adult Swim and it was cancelled when people realised his politics. And um, I do remember Hyde being interviewed um, on a podcast and the interviewer actually pretty much asked this question in a really succinct way and said, um, if everything has been destroyed, if if sort of relations between men and women and if the culture is degenerate or whatever, you know, aren't you just adding to that by your own kind of very nasty nihilistic style of comedy? And, um, you know, he, he didn't really have that much of an answer for it. And I think it is because, um, I think actually he said that, uh, well, you know, everything's ruined anyway, um, something like that. So, you know, there is this kind of sense that the, the politics is growing from not from people who are actually living the lives that they think people should live. They're living the opposite lives. They're gamers. They're people who spend a lot of time online in the small hours of the morning, you know, that kind of thing. They're, they're not people who have traditional families and, and stuff like that themselves, typically. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing, obviously, but, but that is an obvious pattern there. And uh, so that's why you also see a kind of a, a self-improvement uh, culture within it. Uh, you often see um, alt-right sort of propaganda that is very much about like you should go and lift weights and you should, uh, you know, a lot of the, there's a movement called MGTOW, which is men going their own way, which is like a male separatist movement I talk about briefly in the book. And um, 
that's all about kind of almost like self-help or something like that. It's very much about kind of being the master of your own destiny, uh, getting fit, being independent, not like uh, living in some kind of feminized office environment where you're being bossed around by women, that kind of thing. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. There's something you said a minute ago about Sam Hyde, whose story I don't know that well. But but the example you gave of being confronted with this, well, aren't you contributing to the problem you're creating? And, And the answer being something like, well, everything's fucked anyway. You talk a lot about online irony as a style in the book. Um, And you have this good example around the Harambe meme, um, which on the one hand became uh, something that alt-right folks were using in very abusive ways to justify um, abusive arguments. And it becomes unclear, like, is it racism? Is it satire? Like, what, what are people doing? And you have this line that I've been thinking about a lot where you said, do those involved in such memes any longer know what motivated them and if they themselves are being ironic or not? And it made me wonder if whether, well, if whether your argument here is that what's happening is people are getting into something as a joke and then ending up in it sincerely. Yeah, I mean, I think that is kind of what happened. Um, One of the reasons that I think Charlottesville was so important is that it was this kind of, um, I'd say it was a kind of a shock in a way because all of those who are being ironic um, and and have gone down that road to such an extent that they're not really sure if they're being ironic anymore, are they're they're going to fade away now? They're they're, they're they can't because the the events at Charlottesville kind of 
made it real, you know, and made it impossible. Like the whole time that I've been writing about this, I cannot tell you how many times I've been told they're being ironic. You don't understand. Uh, it's all irony. It's all a joke. This is just uh, people being overly sensitive. And now it's obvious that there was certainly a very strong element of truth in it. And in many cases, it did start off with irony and then it became more serious. Part of that too is that irony kind of allowed people to break taboos without having to, without having a get out clause, I suppose, you know, like, so for example, it, it allowed you to just flirt with kind of breaking a taboo. But if you got caught out, um, you could always backtrack on it, you know, I mean, uh, and that is very much a product of the online environment, because what you have at the same time is on the one hand, this culture that's very sensitive and that is, you know, very um, inclined to shame people who say or, or think the wrong thing. And we know a million examples of that. John Ronson's book on this is very good. Um, the, the, you know, one kind of like joke that doesn't land or whatever it is, uh, something that you say wrong online could be the end of your, you know, your career basically in your life. Uh, so on the one hand, this is you know, really high intensity kind of like sensitivity uh, where where you could, you know, ev everything is taboo. And then at the same time, within that, you have this anonymous culture that allows people uh, to break every taboo. And and because they're, because they're so restricted the, the rest of the time on, on, let's say, the mainstream platforms, de-anonymized platforms, they then act out in the anonymous kind of culture. That is certainly a counterculture to the, the mainstream internet culture, if you like. This to me implies a, a mechanism that, I, I don't have this fully worked out in my own head, so maybe it won't come out well and I'll get called out on the internet and my career will be over. But it, you talk a lot about call-out culture in the book. And in terms of transitioning from things that you're exploring or participating in ironically to, to, to participating in sincerely, it seems to me you could imagine a lot of people going through some version of they begin playing around with these ideas. And I think it can be on many different ends of the spectrum. I think you can play around with PC ideas and get made fun of, play around with alt-right ideas and get made fun of on and on down the line. And, you know, you're in your little world and you're trying to be the funniest one in your world. Or you're trying to be the most pure one in the world or whatever it is you're doing to try to create status in your world and signal that you're part of the group. Then you go a little bit too far. And then you get pounded, right? Then you get one mm. of these internet mobs because it got retweeted by someone and then retweeted by someone else. And now 65 people or 100 people or 2,000 people are in your Twitter mentions or your comments or whatever it might be. And I have watched that happen to people over and over and over again. It's happened to me many times. And something that I've noticed about it psychologically is that it never ends up teaching the person they were wrong. It always ends up making them more extreme. It always ends up mm. making them feel angrier at the folks who just ganged up on them and getting them to search for allies, right, who are typically tend to be in their original group. And so you can imagine some of these alt-right folks, um, although I think this is true for a lot of edges of the internet, who start posting these memes or, or whatever it might be, they get hit. And that makes him feel much angrier at these people who they were initially just making fun of in a lighthearted way and much more committed to the people who had their back during this experience. And if you play that out a thousand times, 10,000 times, you know, you begin to you begin to see how how people make that transition pretty quickly. Yeah, that's exactly the, that's exactly it. I mean, those are the dynamics, both the hating the people who have attacked you and ganged up on you and 
the the solidarity with the people who defended you, who are usually small a smaller group of people. I mean, it's weird because sometimes when I've talked to journalists about this, and they like, I remember one uh, Irish journalist saying to me, you know, I mean this seems a little petty. Like, I mean, isn't it just kind of, you know, you get called out on the internet, big deal. Like, you know, that doesn't mean you go and become a fascist. And when you put it like that, it does sound absurd. But, you know, we're dealing with uh, an age cohort that grew up online and that developed their politics completely online in their teens, typically. And so this is the world that they're in every day. And I even know, I mean, I'm sort of a part-time lecturer as well. And I know from talking to students I mean, like anyone kind of under the age of like uh, 25, say, um, you know, and, and, and it gets more extreme the, the younger you go down, ha- are full of stories of uh, of this kind, you know, and, and, and they always have stories about how they, they bonded with a particular little subculture or something like that because of it, you know, it came out of a time when they got mobbed over something or other. There was uh, that article that came out a couple of weeks ago about the uh, young adults fiction call out culture that is really (laughs) incredibly vicious, you know. Um, You know, of course, teenage girls being vicious is nothing new, but um, now the potential for kind of humiliation online is is quite extreme. I think there's another thing in it too where... um, where, you know, I think that we, there is an almost existential thing, if you like, which is that we are having trouble differentiating between ourselves and the self that comes up when you when you look up a name. Uh, so, you know, for example, all social media platforms encourage us to essentially brand ourselves through the platform. So if you go on Twitter, the first thing it asks you to do is write your bio. People put a lot of thought into, you know, this kind of way of branding themselves. You untag yourself in sort of unattractive pictures on Facebook, whatever it might be. You're you're in this daily practice of photographing yourself, you know, uh, so, and, and, uh, and putting the, the best version of yourself out there. And at some point along the way, I think that we, we, the difference between our real selves and the self that we've created online kind of collapses. So that means that when you, when one of these things happens, particularly if the call out goes public in any way, then the, the self that is represented online has been essentially kind of hacked or, or like destroyed. Uh, And it's suddenly not a version of yourself that you want. And so instead of us being able to say, but I'm the real me, and when I turn off my computer, I'm still here, we feel that somebody has almost reached into our identity and and kind of, you know, messed everything up. Uh, so I think it affects people in a much more deep and profound way than than it sounds. And that's why the Ronson book is so good, because he talks about, about that and about how the the people that he talked to were kind of almost suicidal they were they were absolutely devastated it was like you know there had been a death in the family or something like that so you know it, it's not just a bit of like getting called out on the internet or whatever you know it, it's really um it's a type of humiliation that really gets into people and i think does shape people's views as a result yeah i mean badly radicalizes them First, I really agree. The John Ronson book is great, um, and it's needed <laughs> at this moment. I know a lot of journalists. Um, I'm, I'm a journalist, and I don't know any of them who do not find themselves 
deeply emotionally affected when they're on the receiving end of one of these mobs, even if they don't agree mm. with it, right? Even if they're completely confident in what they've written. I've been on the receiving end of it, again, at this point, more times than I can count. I think I'm actually just sort of continually. Um, and so I've just stopped looking at my Twitter mentions like five years ago because it affects you very deeply. I mean, we have emotional hardware from, you know, being in a 200-person community. The idea mm. that you turn on the computer and thousands of people are viciously attacking you. We're not built for that. I mean, it, some people maybe are. Some people are able to tune it out, but I've actually not met many of them. And, and it's something that that you bring up here that I, I don't know quite how to wait, which is if you're fully growing up in this, if this is all you've ever known, I don't actually know how that changes you. I mean, I... There was no social media when I was in college, really. Um, Twitter and things like that came shortly thereafter. Um, Facebook was just beginning to spread. And a lot of what we see now and a lot of what gets attention, particularly around PC culture kind of things, they don't strike me as that new. I mean, I went to UC Santa Cruz. A lot of this stuff was there. Things like the Sokol hoax, which you mentioned in the book, that I think was in the 80s. I mean, they're, you know, in the University of California system, there's been long-running fights over diversity on campus. But it couldn't all explode virally online in the way that it can now. And so it both didn't radicalize everyone else. It was just kids at a college doing whatever kids at a college do. And it didn't have this effect on, on, on the kids there. And I don't think anybody on either side has quite figured out how to armor around this, how to sort of navigate it in, in a way that makes sense. And, and I found myself struggling with this, honestly, in your book, where I couldn't decide if you were just deep in this in a way I wasn't. And so these things felt like bigger deals to you than they felt like to me, or whether I am not in this in the way that a kid today is. And so these are much bigger deals for them than I have any way of, of realizing. I mean, you have a, an interesting chapter on Tumblr PC culture, which just seems super weird to me. Uh, but I, I don't know how to wait. Is that a big deal on in people's lives? Or is that just a weird thing happening that in the past, it just didn't happen visibly online, but it was happening in people's journals and in their college groups. And so all we're dealing with now is a visibility of something that is already of a sort of boundary testing and in-group sort of environment and, and social mores that have always been there among young people. Yeah, I mean, I guess the fact that people are in an online environment in which kind of creating uh, one's own identity is very important. Everyone has to do that online to some extent. And so then that kind of characterizes the politics a lot of the time, uh, particularly if you're if you're trying to carve out a kind of radical space on the fringes, you have to go so much further out now, uh, you know, to be distinctive, I guess, than you would have had to when you were in college. And, um, you know, these are, on the one hand, relatively small, but they're overrepresented online. Like, I mean, if your interests are basically football and socializing, you are not going to be as represented online as somebody whose interests are like other kin or, uh, or indeed. Um, Can you just tell people what other kin is? Um, it's essentially a uh, sort of a online subculture, I guess, in which people identify as something other than human, or at least partly. So they might identify as an animal or partly an animal. So let me ask you something about what you just said, because this is this is exactly where I don't really know what to think. 
It seems to me that, so there is this big Tumblr world of otherkin stuff where people feel like they're born part werewolf or they're, you know, that they, they spiritually identify with something that is not quite human. And, and it, it's, it sounds weird, to, I think, if you're hearing this for the first time, but, but people take it seriously and, and it feels it's a community to them. And yet, you know, I run a website, so I have some sense of online traffic dynamics and SB Nation, which is our sports site, or Deadspin, or to say nothing of ESPN, they're massively bigger than this stuff. Mm. And so when you say you're more represented online if you're into otherkin, or even, I mean, to go maybe more into the mainstream, you're more represented online if you have, um, you know, if you're really into just sort of PC politics or anti-PC politics. And yet, you know, BuzzFeed News is a lot smaller than the broader BuzzFeed itself, which obviously has identity dimensions to it, but is is more than that. Or Tasty, which is about food online, is like this massive video thing. And so I guess one of the questions I have for you is, how do you draw the distinction on whether what you're looking at is intense but very small, or it's something that is actually meaningful to the to the wider culture? I think it is intense but small, actually. Um, when I say that they're more represented, I suppose I mean for their size, they 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 are more represented online because, but in both cases, the culture is so online, and it's it's about kind of a culture that requires you to be online a great deal of the time. So it, it's not that, of course, these cultures are bigger than you know a mainstream like a sports culture or something like that. But given their relatively small numbers, they're, you know, they're more represented, you know, in relative terms. But I think there's another part to it, too, which is that, you know, one of the the things that some people were getting angry at me about uh, on Twitter and stuff over the book is that they were kind of saying you're blaming the the these like kids on Tumblr who are like not sort of harming anyone and who are just kind of you know, just have this kind of cultural politics for the rise of of the alt-right. And it, it's really not that. I mean, what I'm saying is that both of these cultures, the one that I associate with Tumblr, I mean, I'm using that as a broad way of, of defining it, but it existed outside of Tumblr as well. And similarly, the, the culture I associate with 4chan that also existed outside of 4chan, uh, one, let's just say, of the left and one of the right, roughly speaking. Both of these cultures were very, very highly conscious of the other. So just to mention Sam Hyde again, I remember a, a, a really early video of him where he was quite young. He, he was like, um, uh, you know, looked quite different because I guess he must have been in his late teens, maybe early 20s or something like that. And in it, uh, it actually has Tumblr in the title. And in it, he's actually looking at um, looking at photos from Tumblr and he's making fun of the stereotypical Tumblr kind of girls. And, um, you know, so... I mean, that's just one example, but in a way, if you grew up on the irreverent, forachani kind of right-wing internet, you were very conscious of what was happening on the other side, because the other side represented to you everything you don't like about uh, about about the cultural left, we'll say, you know, uh, the, the complete... Um, breakdown of gender definitions or or the um i guess uh, the the gender fluidity in the culture and the the ultra sensitivity the uh the the whole kind of cultural politics package of tumblr and equally if you're on the if you're on the tumblr side your view of the world that everything is a type of white supremacy that everyone is everything is an is an expression of patriarchy you know that western societies will say are these uh 
you know, incredibly oppressive, bigoted, horrible places. Um, and in a way, because they were both looking at each other, they were reinforcing each other's view of the world. And, and you could see it all the way throughout. They were always using examples uh, from the other uh, culture as proof um, of, uh, you know, the, the very kind of dismal view that they had of the world and Western society and where it was all going. That, that I think is a really good insight that nobody can possibly do more to fortify first like the PC view of the world and the alt-right and then the alt-right view of the world and then the excesses of, of, of the PC world. As yeah. I understood the book, you, the argument you made around this in the book, though, which I thought was interesting, it's that this sort of culture, Tumblr, but in its more liberal mainstream incarnations too, began to narrow what it was okay to say online. Um, and then the alt-right rises up as a sort of response by um, first delighting in transgression. You can't narrow what I'm saying because I'm actually in a world where to bust that boundary is what gives me status, which I thought was interesting. But I guess one question I had looking at that and, and trying to think about that relationship is whether both the PC culture and its excesses that we see online um, and offline for that matter, and the alt-right uh, are now manifestations of a more real struggle over power and status and representation in our, our society. I mean, I, I just don't think it's an accident that the internet looks like this at a moment mm. when the majority of infants under three in America for the first time are, are, are non-white or when, right, this was a lot during the period when the first black president was elected and serving. And this all seems to, I think sometimes we look at it and it looks like there's a sort of isolated internet PC culture fighting with this isolated alt-right culture. But it feels to me that these are both groups that are part of what is at the moment a very, very real struggle for status and power and, you know, racial uh, equality or non-equality in American society. And that sort of, and, and that the intensity we see around them reflect something that is actually happening offline in ways we don't quite even know how to talk about or how to measure. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think in a way, kind of when these cultures started off, they were possibly just uh, not fully formed and uh, not maybe half-baked sense of anxiety about these things that if you go into the online world and enjoy the thrill of being able to say racist words and sexist words and so on, even if you haven't fully worked out why or you don't have a coherent politics yet, I definitely think that the, that the backdrop of that is the fact that identity politics has made such gains in, in so many areas and the demographic kind of essentially thing that you're describing because demographics is what they all ended up at. Or even the ones who just started off trolling people and saying, you know, it's all an ironic joke and so on, they all kind of ended up uh, obsessed with race and demographics. And um, of course, gender is very central to that too because they're they're saying, why is it that these kind of educated white women are are, are all childless? And, um, uh, you know, the, the birth rate in the non-white world is higher. And also, you know, the in these kind of spaces, they, they do really obsess about, like, at what year whites will become a minority in America. And, and they do, you know, they have this vision of, white people becoming like this enslaved sort of minority 
But the thing is, I mean, those demographic changes are happening. And I do often feel that there's a lack of seriousness in the way that we actually talk about that. I mean, I can't think of a time when I've actually heard a really good kind of, you know, discussion on that. I suppose because all these issues are so taboo, nobody wants to touch them. But I mean, you know, if the Western world has, I mean, American kind of patterns are a little different to Europe, but but certainly all of the Western world has... Um, very high uh, inward uh, immigration rates um, and very low birth rates uh, where they're not replacing uh, themselves. And, you know, obviously, if those patterns continue, then it's, you know, whites will be a minority. Um, Their idea is basically that this is a conspiracy against white people. And this is a conspiracy against kind of traditional, like European heritage and all this kind of stuff. I think it's like I tend to take a much more materialist view of the world. So I think it's it's simply a product of of travel technologies and the fact that um, when people can move around so freely, it suddenly then becomes a political issue of force to try to stop people uh, from moving. One reason I think it's hard to talk about this stuff is that <laughs> the edges of it are so fucking crazy and offensive that you don't want to seem like you're giving giving any sucker to that, this white genocide stuff. But what one thing that I often think when I watch how this argument plays out, because I do think there are ways in which power and status in society can be zero-sum. I don't think it is completely irrational for particularly more downscale whites to feel that they are losing something. Um, and I think that that thing maybe should be lost. I think representation on television, you have a lot in your book about how the argument that politics is downstream from culture. And culture is where I think a lot of these changes have taken place uh, fastest and, and and most aggressively. I mean, Gamergate is an example of, you know, you have a video game subculture that is angry about seeing more representation and more fights representation in video games. But I think about Chris Rock making really an argument about institutionalized discrimination in Hollywood at the Oscars. And if you're just some white kid somewhere, you know, who does not see great hopes for yourself, you're watching this and and you probably do feel a little bit weirded out by that, a little bit embattled by that. And yet there's this weird way in which the argument seems to me to be about one side arguing about what the present is and the other side Mm. fearing what the future looks like, right? Where you have um, a lot of the, the fights about what America is like right now what representation looks like right now, what where people are in society right now, where income and wealth are right now. And then you have these folks, and, and I'm trying to um, use the better version of this, but, well, to use a bad version of it, when you see these white supremacists marching in Charlottesville yelling, you will not replace us, mm. this idea that they are being replaced, they feel they are being replaced, I there's something to it. I mean, not, I think replaced is a strong word, but the idea that they are going to lose some kind of majority status and power is not untrue. And Mm. yet this sort of talking of the, this fighting between the present and this imagined future or predicted future feels very, very, it, it feels so real because the stakes really are high, but it's also a very unproductive conversation. And yet you understand why it can never be resolved. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the the and you know, as it's like they those terms that they use replace us and genocide and so on. I mean, they're obviously, you know, they they they're not just hyperbole, but they're they 
they suggest an element of aggression on the side of 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 non-whites or feminists or whoever it is, right. gander or whatever. But as you say, I mean, these demographic shifts are very profound and they are happening. And when the um, ethnic component of a society changes, that is actually a massive, I mean, that changes everything actually, you know. Um, And the totally naive, um, I suppose this is why the alt-right are so tough on kind of uh, American the idea of American exceptionalism, I suppose, that 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 America is built on an idea rather than blood and soil or something like that. They're kind of saying that's bogus because America is actually, America as it now exists was created by sort of white Anglo-Saxon men. They're saying, that, I suppose, that we're kind of hiding from the ethnic kind of uh, component of, of what makes up a culture. I mean, in the case of Euro, that, that, it, that it takes very little actually to tilt the kind of ethnic balance of, of uh, these kind of places. Um, and they're saying, well, look, we're going to lose these cultures forever. Now, the thing is, I sort of feel like losing the past forever is just the condition of modernity. And it's why, um, you know, every serious thinker about modernity has said the same thing in different ways, which is that it's constant revolution. It's the constant loss of tradition. It's the loss of meaning. It's the the total chaos, you know, and, uh, and, and that's kind of unstoppable at this point. So... I mean, I think the conversations that I would love to see happening a lot more would be about if we are to have a normative culture of some kind, what is that going to be? How are we going to cohere societies that are much more mixed? And, you know, particularly in the case of when there's a lot of recent immigration, uh, when there's a clash of of uh, cultures or, or something like that, I mean, or, or let's say a difference in, in cultures, Everyone's sort of terrified to even have the conversation in case you say the wrong thing. But, you know, I think there should be actually a positive conversation about it. And we should be able to say, you know, this isn't just some awful thing that we have to manage. You know, we should be much more, I guess, cosmopolitan about it. I mean, cosmopolitanism is not not a fashionable thing right now. It's sort of got dealt a big blow with, um, with sort of Trump and Brexit. But I think that we should sort of relearn the value of living in a mixed kind of society, it, yes, it's more chaotic and more volatile, but it's also, uh, you know, lots of other great things. I mean, I think it's a problem that we're leaving that territory to the far right, because then when the, when these kind of intellectually curious sort of young men start asking questions because they're reading all this stuff on the forums they're on, our attitude is just sort of, just don't ask, just that you, you just don't, can't say it, don't talk about it. And um, because they're in this very irreverent uh, little, little online world, that's not good enough for them. So they they end up seeing answers um, in places that, you know, are, the, the, and this is where they're getting it all from. You know, people a little bit older than them who've thought about this for a while, people like Richard Spencer, they have worked out answers to these things because they're saying, you know, this the, the, this will be a disaster and the only way to, to deal with it is to stop it. Um, so there's a, a lack of, um, there's a lack of serious engagement with it maybe elsewhere. So well, I will make a quick plug to say if, if people do want to hear a defense of cosmopolitanism, I had Kwame Anthony Appiah on the podcast a couple of months ago as a philosopher uh, who wrote a book called Cosmopolitanism and, and makes a very, I think, stirring defense of it. But even even having done that conversation and, and, and believing actually quite a bit in at least a version of that theory, I guess in my more pessimistic moods on this, 
I I worry that it's going to get a lot worse. And I worry that it's not really that amenable to argument, which is not to say I do not want to argue it. Um, I have this podcast. I like arguing things out. Uh, it's it's sort of my my default mode. But I think there is a hope, and certainly I have that hope, that there is some theory, some approach to this where everybody can feel good about it. But if we are seem to me to be in this moment where the demographics have tipped in this way, in a way we're not going to tip back, where gender and racial and um, related concerns can't be, for all kinds of reasons, both technological and ideological, uh, are not going to be put back in the box. And if you're a white man for whom life just isn't going that well, that is going to be a difficult thing to watch. And it doesn't mean it will ever be a majority opinion. I don't think this alt-right stuff will ever become that big on some level. But it can become a very vicious and significant minority opinion. And, you know, Donald Trump to me is very much part of this. This is something that I, I, I was thinking about after reading the book, which is that, you know, the alt-right is one way of thinking about Donald Trump, but he actually does terribly among young mm. people. I mean, his current approval rating among Americans under 30 is 22%. He had a lower percentage of young voters than Mitt Romney did. He does really well among old people. <laughs> if you're over 50, you, you, you on average vote for Donald Trump. And one thing I think is we're looking at this stuff on the alt-right, and that's its online manifestation of it. And so for if you're immersed in digital politics in the way you are and the way to, to a large extent I am, you really see that manifestation of it. But I think in mm. some ways there's an even darker one that is not these young kids trying to be transgressive online, but it's people who remember a time when they felt America was great and when they felt they had more power and their side had more status. And that is that slips and it will slip. Um, and I'm not saying, uh, I'm not even putting a normative judgment on that for the second. I think it's going to be really societally disruptive. And I'm not sure it's an argument thing. I, I worry that there's something here that is just going to be very, very difficult for a sort of democratic experiment to bear. Now, I don't feel like that every day. As I said, that's my more pessimistic days. Those are the days when I, I talk with Yasha Monk. But but I don't know. I, I worry that there's something more real here that we can't change just through better online hygiene. Yeah. I mean, studying the alt-right, the, one of the first questions people ask is, um, you know, but how many of them are there? The, you know, the people are kind of obsessed. But, well, I think people were being hopeful and saying, but there, there's only a couple of hundred of them. It's no big deal. But I think that I've always thought that there, on both sides, there was a kind of a vanguard element to it where I felt like, they're a sign of something bigger, you know. Um, I think they're a sign of maybe things to come in a way, as horrible as that is to even say. But it's interesting because if, if you look at like one of the issues, um, not that I think, oh, we should just be able to say whatever we want. I mean, I, I definitely don't think that actually. What I think is more that people on the left, particularly on cultural issues, not so much on economic issues, because I do take the view that we sort of won the culture war and lost the economic war. There's been a kind of a, an intellectual laziness and a, a sense that because so much is taboo, we haven't really learned to, or we've forgotten in a way how to argue like what, what we're actually for and why. I mean, I often think of the example because I'm 
Well, I was born in the States, but I'm I'm Irish, sort of I'm an Irish citizen and stuff. In in, in Ireland, one of the ways in which things changed was actually through cultural movements. So, for example, before independence and then obviously after when it was being consolidated, when Ireland was seeking independence from the British Empire, there was a cultural nationalist movement. And what that created was an entire a history, a literature, an aesthetic, uh, you know, it, its own theatres, its own poetry, you know, everything. Uh, then fast forward maybe 50 years later and you've got a, the cosmopolitanism of Joyce or, you know, you, you've got a, the opposite movement, which is a reaction against the insular nationalism that resulted from the the the, the cultural nationalist movement becoming uh, fossilised and, and, and just part of the establishment. So I think an awful lot these days about the fact that it's not just about the, I mean, the arguments are really important and they need to be constantly had and we need to constantly examine them in order to keep ourselves used to, uh, you know, defending our ideas and so on. But also, uh, I think that, I think possibly like something like a cultural movement that, that actually gives us a vision of the future, a particular vision of the future that takes into account the very different ethnic component that will be there in, in the West that sort of asks like, what kind of society is this going to be? How will it blend the different uh, groups that are there. We don't have any vision of the future right now. I mean, that is the problem. We're we're just sort of sleepwalking into uh, the all of these profound changes, um, which which the right always says, or oh, we're sleepwalking. It's five minutes to midnight and this kind of stuff. Now the thing is, we are sleepwalking into it in the sense that we don't have a vision of the future. I mean, the only people who have a vision of the future now are sort of like Silicon Valley people. Um, they, they're the only people who seem to want to actually, re, you know, imagine the future as something better and so on. Uh, their vision of the future is, is is not one that, you know, everyone thinks will be better. But but nonetheless, they, they stand out in the sense that they are at least thinking about the future in that kind of utopian, uh, constructive way. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I can imagine looking at this two ways. One is to say that it often looks to me that there is a very, very profound and effective cultural movement in America right now, uh, particularly around culture itself. I was watching, um, actually, I should say, my wife was watching The O.C. the other day, which is a show. It's actually about my hometown of Orange County. Um, and you could just never have a show like that that was so unrepresentative now. You could never do it. I mean, and I come from OC, which is an incredibly diverse place. It's really offensive that show is basically all white people. But you you could not 
do that. Um, television, culture, music, I think a lot more of it actually is presenting a vision of America that is beyond where America is right now uh, in certain mm -hmm. ways. I think I was true with LGBT issues on television and elsewhere for a long time, right? I mean, you had Will and Grace and Ellen long before you had um, anything even approaching or, you know, whether or not you believe we're there now, anything even approaching uh, equality under the law. And I also think of the Obama, at least 2008 campaign as a version of this, as an effort to create something like this. And that it, it feels to me that this had a lot of impact very quickly. And two things came from that. One, of course, it also has its excesses, right? I mean, it has manifestations where, you know, people will sharply restrict what it is okay to say and, and people gang up on each other on social media, though obviously that happens in all directions. Um, but, but it has its excesses, um, for, as anything does. But also, it feels to me it creates backlash, I mean, I think of Trump as in part a backlash to Obama. There's a lot going on, of course, in, in mm. Donald Trump's victory. But I don't think Donald Trump happens if you don't have a black president before him. I mean, he comes up as part of – as the only big mainstream figure to, to champion the birther movement. I mean, the, this stuff is not unrelated. Hamilton is another sort of cultural artifact trying to create a – trying to basically remythologize America in a certain way. I think all this stuff, it's its interesting and it's I think it's really, it's been very effective. I think it's changed the culture very, very dramatically, very fast. But I also think that it's not fooling anyone, right? The, the people are experiencing it and the people who don't feel good about it, right, are getting angrier and angrier and feeling more and more and more left out. And it's becoming more and more toxic and, and, and combustible. And I don't know that that's a reason you stop doing it. But I just, I don't know that you can have that kind of cultural movement without it having excesses. And I don't know that it can make real gains without there being real resentment. And I think there's this very difficult question about how much speed of change can America bear? Um, you know, things feel yeah. very fractured to me right now. I think it's, I think there's fear, there should be some fear around this moment. Um, and it's not, I'm in favor of virtually everything I've just talked about, uh, but I'm, I'm not sure there's a way to do it easy. Yeah, I mean, but it's interesting because if if you look at like one of the issues that always seems to be like a lightning rod for this stuff is, you know, remakes of um, films and different things mm -hmm. with more women, more people of color and so on. And on the one hand, you know, there's a kind of absurdity to it. Like we're so obsessed with this, like, you know, female Ghostbusters or whatever. And, you know, all of this these huge kind of economic forces are going on around us that we don't pay any attention to whatsoever. Uh, but these things seem to just absorb all of our attention all the time. And there's constant war over them. Uh, I don't know. There, there's a lot of kind of tokenism and there's a lot of people feeling that they have to have 50% women on every panel. And, you know, if they don't, they're going to be absolutely annihilated and publicly humiliated and stuff like this, you know. Um, I don't know what, I don't know how to solve these things. Unfortunately, I don't really have an answer except a vague sense that instead of just constantly attacking and shaming people and kind of saying you have to do this or we are going to boycott you or shame you or destroy your reputation, I mean, that is not going to bring anyone around to your side, you know. I think there has to be instead a way of expressing these things in in a positive, almost utopian way, you know. Uh, I mean, 
imagining a future that was ethnically mixed, that was, uh, you know, more gender equal or even more gender fluid. That's been part of sci-fi for a long time, you know, and, and, you know, and sci-fi, of course, is just how, you know, it's, it's sort of how we imagine the future. Um, I think instead what we have now is this totally negative method of saying, you know, you, you force people through humiliation tactics to, to just represent, you know, the different groups in this sort of headcount way. And, you know, there's just something very hollow about it because I just think, you know, I mean, if you look at the actual, the, the, the figures, as I, as I, uh, the, the, the most recent ones that I have read certainly suggest that the wealth gap between uh, black and white Americans is, is larger now uh, that it has grown. Uh, so I kind of think, well, why are we obsessing about having every group represented in, you know, in, in like um, TV shows and stuff like that and not addressing some of the more profound economic uh, and material questions that are kind of reproducing these things? So, for example, I mean, if you look at a uh, recently, I was researching something and I was looking at some of the kind of human resource like documents in, uh, you know, publicly available for different companies, you know, Uber and and different companies like this that want to have a kind of a, you know, a, like a, a cool kind of youthful uh, public image or whatever. Right. And they're using all the language of sort of activism, like, like uh, you know, they're they're saying, you know, we have a diverse staff and stuff like that and and I think like of course you have a diverse staff it's because you're you're not paying them properly you know um and so we have this like weird set of values it doesn't really make any sense where we're saying you know uh, as long as there is just some general you know headcount representation it doesn't matter if you know if the wealth gap in in so many different ways is is growing i mean you could say you know, we're moving towards, you know, something like a kind of an oligarchy. You know, there are all these huge monopolies. The kind of wealth gaps are growing and growing. And we're trying to solve it through the culture of representation. And I just don't, I mean, that's obviously not good enough. It, it, that's not going to change. I, I, I'm very much of the view it happens the other way around. You change the material stuff and the culture will naturally follow. When people have... Um, have wealth, have representation, are organized politically, whatever it might be, they will start getting represented in culture naturally, you know. Um, uh, whereas instead, we don't know how to deal with the economic questions. We we feel that they're too complicated and that they're maybe even impossible. And so then we're trying to to do the work through culture. I mean, part of that is also that we have inherited this kind of very end of history uh, kind of sense of of this that like, you know, it, there's no point in trying to transform the economy because, it, you know, it will just end in disaster. There's no point in trying to um, engage in any radical utopian projects because they'll they'll all end in disaster. And so instead, this is kind of like um, tinkering with kind of uh, uh, these representational issues and they're never going to address the fundamental ones. But we, we have a, a lack of faith in our ability to address these issues in a more profound way. So I I think there's a I think that's a super interesting way of looking at this and and I want to try to work through it here for for a minute. So I recognize that it's a it's a significant critique of I'd say mainstream liberalism now that it is focused on representational identity issues and not on economics. And I think there's you know there can be something to that. 
but I also I I sometimes rebel against the severing of these issues in this way. Um, and, and I'll come at this from the perspective of someone who has at times been on been on the wrong side of these kinds of mobs, right? Um, you know, when we launched Vox, for instance, we got a lot of criticism for not having a diverse enough staff, and that criticism was right. Um, that criticism was correct, and it is change. It was, I think, a valuable thing for us to hear. And and one reason I, I just don't know that I think of that as just pure representational cultural questions is that if you care about things like the wealth distribution and and the income distribution, and I do, it can't be that you don't have African-American actors represented in major motion pictures in leading roles. It can't be that you have an entirely white executive class in Silicon Valley or an entire or a mostly overwhelmingly male executive class in Silicon Valley, um, not just because those individual people make money, but because women leaders have different views about how jobs should be structured and you do, you, ha- you end up having more work-life balance. I think there's good, I think there's good research on that kind of thing. And you know, to the idea that it's all negative, I, on some of like, I, I hear you, <laughs> like it, it often feels really negative. And on the other hand, I think um, if someone who is more from that perspective was in this conversation, they'd say it wouldn't have to be so negative if people responded to softer efforts at persuasion. Um, if people would respond to to a nice article or to, to, to a, re- a polite request. I mean, panels, I think, are a great example because they're so costless to try to make them more representative. Um, and yet, I mean, it probably is still very true, but you know, you had an, uh, you had these panel discussions in journalism and tech and other things and politics that until recently, they were not just all white, but they were all male and there's just no reason for it. And so, yeah, I think people on the receiving end of this stuff don't like it. I've not liked it when I've been on the receiving end of it, but I'm not sure it's wrong. And I, I'm also just not sure it's so separable from the economics of it. I, I think that, part of the reason the economy looks the way it does is that the people who have a lot of control over it look the way they do. And not to say there aren't better ways of doing it, not to say there aren't better ways of of, of talking about it, and not to say economic policy itself doesn't need to be quite dramatically transformed. But I don't know. I feel like this is this big argument on the left right now. It's a critique of, of sort of Democrats to the left, of left to the Democrats. And it's creating a severing that just feels weird to me, that doesn't feel like it is holistic enough in the way either the economy or the culture work. Mm. Yeah, no, I completely see where you're coming from. I mean, look, I'm very glad that I live in a culture where people have to think twice about having an all-male panel or something like that, you know, or having, you know, only employing men or something like that. You know what I mean? And, you know, even in my limited experience of, of, of organizing things like that, People always now think twice. They they will always say, no, this is this panel is not diverse enough or we haven't got enough different voices in here and stuff like that. And you're right. I mean, you know, that doesn't come about in its own. There has to be a bit more of an aggressive push than there than there might be. Um and that's that's very true. I mean, I suppose um, you know, I'm critiquing something, but I'm also aware that it's it's mostly a, a positive thing. Like like it's more just that I think people on the left who are starting to critique that style of kind of, um, you know, re- representational politics um, are doing so not because they think it should be just thrown out, uh, but more they feel a frustration that it's not delivering, that it's not going to deliver the things that will be needed to kind of profoundly change these questions. 
I mean, just as an example, if you look at the the, the kind of uh, like feminist sort of corporate culture, right, and, and ideas kind of coming from that world, the idea that we have these, you know, we have these workplaces where unions are destroyed, people have no kind of rights in terms of work or very little, um, but that then we can just bring women in and that women can work the same hours as men while having children and this kind of stuff. I mean, my attitude to 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 looking at sort of like let's just call it sort of corporate feminism is always that actually that you know everyone should be working less. So the right are saying women should go we should go back to tradition and women should be spending more time in the home. And then I suppose the liberals are saying no, we have to have exactly 50-50 and men and women should be doing the same uh, work. Um but I mean I think again we should think in a more positive future oriented and kind of utopian way and 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 look at things like you know it used to be an old trade union goal that you would have full employment but with a, a reduced working week and reduced working hours uh, and that everyone would have more leisure time with the development of automation so i'm kind of thinking instead of trying to have women do exactly the same you know absolutely crazy kind of work obsessed uh, you know culture as men we should be reinventing that whole thing and just kind of saying, you know, there's actually a more profound question in the culture, which is why is it that we now find meaning through our work? Why is it that we now search for meaning through work and we have we can't really find it anywhere else? I mean, traditionally it was through, you know, the the it, it was through religion, it was through uh, you know, family and stuff like that. Um now, I'm not, of course, suggesting we go back, and I don't think you ever can go back. I think that's that that's just part of what it means to be in in a modern society. But I think that instead of uh, I, having this, uh, I don't know, have it kind of managing what's happening, we should have a, a more of an approach that says, you know, we have to get get out of this idea that we can't really fundamentally change things and actually try to fundamentally change things. I mean. And that's not just a material question either. I mean, uh, although that that is generally where where I'm sort of coming from politically, I think it is also a kind of a question of values because we would have to really rethink what it is that gives our life meaning. Because I don't think that a world that which, which we have created in which we get all our meaning from work is going to be one that produces a great deal of uh, happiness. I think it's going to be a very a very alienated kind of society, and um, and I and I think the happy the unhappiness that that has created is actually very noticeable in the culture. Um, the problem, once again, though, I I really feel like because we're not really talking about this stuff. I mean, some people are, but but we're perhaps not having the conversations we should be. This territory has been kind of given over to the right. So if you go on to these kind of forums, you can talk all day about. Uh, these kind of so demographic and social patterns, um, and you know the, their conclusions tend to be reactionary. But we could be looking for you know much something much more positive, but but that I suppose looks has ambitions beyond um, beyond the politics of representation. Not uh, that it rejects them, but that it it addresses the more profound question that creates the inequalities in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think there. I think my view is that there are a lot of these things, and they're they're a little bit, maybe a little bit different. But I actually really, it's something I think about a lot recently that we have a lot of difficulty 
with uh, any kind of discourse around more utopian ideas. Um, particularly, I, I come from a sort of politics, policy, journalism background. It's very, very, very difficult to get people to think about, talk about things that are not plausibly going to be voted in, on in Congress within the next five years, right? If you just want to talk about mm. something that nobody's going to vote on, cannot possibly pass, and you want to try to get that past your editor, which is easier now that I'm the editor, but um, but but prior to that, uh, it's very tough. It seems to people like you're you're wasting your time. Um, and and to your point about work, it we never have the conversation that the robots are going to come take all our jobs, and maybe that'll be great. Uh, that that yeah. is not the way that discourse goes forward. My wife is is working on a book about universal basic income, and part of that book is looking at some of these job arguments, these um, labor market arguments. And one of the the big themes, uh, you know, that, that comes up in that is just how much the culture is about the status and dignity that comes from work and, and whether or not you can even absorb something that doesn't have that uh, dimension to it, whether you can absorb uh, a culture that looks at this very differently. Um, that doesn't feel to me like it, it's centered really in any one political movement. I mean, there there seems to be a, a mm. real explosion and flowering of this kind of thinking on the left and on the right. Uh, it does feel to me that people are looking for answers. But there's an interesting book written a couple months ago by Tyler Cowen, the the economist, called The Complacent Class. And, and he was on um, this podcast talking about it. And one of the things that he really argues is that one reason he thinks societies become more complacent and more um, hidebound is there's a lot less political extremism than there was when he was growing up. That while that political extremism often had very negative uh, dimensions to it, right, and it could even get violent, and I mean, it was much scarier in some ways, that the range of outcomes people could imagine pursuing, people could imagine having happen, spoke to a more vibrant, spoke to a more dynamic society. And that this stability, this political stability, if you even believe we have it, which I think has become a somewhat less certain uh, assertion in the last couple of years, but if you believe we have it, it comes with a real cost. It comes with a narrowing of our ambitions and narrowing of our dynamism and narrowing of what we might achieve because we just can't imagine that many things to achieve. And even if some of the ones we are thinking of uh, still seem unachievable. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to go back and um let's say, on the question of feminism, to go back and look at kind of some second wave feminism. Um, I mean, second wave feminism, which people kind of, I think, associate with Jermaine Greer and stuff like that, is has has fallen out of fashion or whatever. But uh, one thing that was there in it that you don't really see to the same extent now is that they were trying to completely rethink uh, the family. Um, now, uh, you know, I think what we have ended up with is this weird, um, the, the family in a way is partly still the nuclear family or it's, it's primarily still the nuclear family, which is different from, you know, I mean, that that's much more, that was much more common in the kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant world, even than it would have been in, in the Catholic world. Um, you know, for example, when I was a kid, I was surrounded by uh, like dozens and dozens of of cousins and aunts and uncles and, you know, this massive extended family, this massive extended network that people had to rely upon. Um, so now we have, you know, in so many ways, we're just so much more isolated. And now even that kind of very small, you know, isolated little unit of the nuclear family is also kind of falling apart. But we don't have anything to replace. Like we don't have, it's not that we're becoming, you know, more like the village raises the child or something like that. We're just more isolated, you know. So I think we're just living through a really, 
I, I think we're living through a moment and that fear that you kind of express, I also feel, uh, because we're reaching uh, the end of something and we don't, we can't imagine what comes next. I think the level of isolation and in, in and sort of, I think it is essentially coming from a kind of culture of individualism has thrown up a lot of problems and isn't in a way robust enough to deal with the big changes that are happening. So, for example, we would not express, uh, you know, nationalist sentiments in a way that people that was completely ordinary, let's say, 50 years ago, you know, uh, and and there, there's a reason for that. People saw the excesses of nationalism, um, you know, in World War Two and so on. We have this situation where all the old stuff has, di- has died, basically, right? The, the nuclear family is sort of falling apart. The ethnic component of Western societies is changing. You know, religion is gone, basically. Um, uh, we don't really have community of any kind. I mean, I think we're, we're, we're pretty individualized. Um, and, you know, all of the things that, that, that were critiqued and that, and that were in some way rejected you know, it's that rejecting them is not the problem. It's that question of what replaces them. And I really don't see that there's a vision of the future that is really positive that we're going to actually replace all of these things with. And I definitely don't think that finding meaning in life from work alone and just being a totally isolated individual is is going to produce anything positive. I, I mean, and that's, I mean, the last piece I wrote in The Baffler kind of addressed this. I think one of the reasons that, you know, a figure like Richard Spencer, you know, was so attractive to so many of these kind of young men, basically, is that he didn't talk about, you know, I mean, I, he, he does occasionally, but but Richard Spencer doesn't talk about like IQ and stuff like that all the time or like head measurements or something like that. He spends most of his time talking about um, meaning, identity, feeling like you're part of a story. You know, he has a kind of vision of the future. It's all about sort of, you know, giving young men a sense of pride, uh, young white men a sense of pride and so on. And it's all about being part of a family. I mean, this is what he always says. We're, we're part of a family. We're we're part of this ancient story. And that that kind of stuff is powerful for a reason. I mean, people don't want to think about why it is that the alt-right is attractive to people. Uh and I, I really feel that that's that's really what it is. I mean, he is speaking to, um, you know, that sense of alienation that, that 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 people feel. You know, there's always going to be fringes of politics, right? Like wacky fringes. But if if you want to win over a, a kind of majority, I think you do at this point. It's not enough to just have little proposals to tinker with policy and stuff like that, which, which which seem to do the trick for most of my lifetime. I think now there is such a a sense of um, purposelessness and meaninglessness and alienation and so on. I feel that very profoundly. And I think that any politics that's going to kind of answer these problems is going to have to to deal with that question of meaning, like who are we? What is you know what? Where are we? What's our future? Where are we going? What is our what is our purpose? To have a longer vision of that for people to feel like they're part of something bigger than just one individual life and one job and uh, and sort of um, you know some consumer items and stuff like that. I mean that that's not enough to sustain people anymore. 
You you mentioned the, this most recent Baffalo piece, which actually is a good bridge back to, to the alt-right before we end here. And, and you wrote in it that in all of my time observing the alt-right, I've never seen its adherence so uncertain, floundering, excuse-making, and on the back foot. On, on 4chan's list, for instance, posters debated whether open talk of a white ethnostate is any longer a good tactic and if the movement's most confident and unapologetic spokespeople should be ditched for figures espousing a less extreme line. Post-Charlottesville, why is why do you see the alt-right cracking up a bit and where do you think it goes from here? I see it cracking up because I think that um, the violence that happened on the day kind of made the whole thing real. And it also put this question of irony beyond use, basically. You know, I mean, people just cannot claim irony anymore, you know, which was what baffled uh, sort of journalists and stuff like that all along. And it also, the irony thing kind of allowed people who weren't really 100% sure what they, how far they were willing to go, what their goals were, that how much they really bought into it. They were able to hide in that kind of vagueness, but... I think that the seeing these really committed white nationalists there who really are willing to deal with violence and violence possibly even state repression because they really believe in 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 this stuff I I think that the the vast majority of the people who seem to be making up the bulk of this online are not willing to go that far not even close and um uh, and so it's made it all very real it's also, it's meant that, you know, all the different groups around the kind of hardcore of the alt-right have kind of peeled off. They've they've all like denounced the alt-right now. They're all, they don't want to be associated with them. And just generally the tone is different. Like the, the tone since the day of the elections has been totally triumphalist. And, and just getting stronger and stronger the whole time. And then suddenly that changed. There was a lot of silence and a lot of people saying, oh, uh, we have to wait to hear the, the details about the car, what happened with the um, with the car driving into the crowd. And then it was, oh, the police didn't, uh, didn't manage it properly. I mean, these are not the kind of arguments that are typical of that, of what had been such a cocky kind of confident group of people. Uh, this was very much, we don't really know what we're going to do now. So let's just, let's just sort of make excuses and, 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 and see what happens. I mean, the thing is, look, like their goals in, absolutely necessitate violence on a massive scale. I mean, you cannot say, you know, you know, they, they might, they might be peaceful on the day, you know, if they do another demonstration or whatever, but but their goals involve violence. Uh, they necessitate violence. They're impossible without violence um, because you cannot, I mean, creating a white ethno state in America, it's just like it, it would be, a, it would, you know, necessitate a civil war. And so we have to keep kind of saying that uh, because I think that saying that repeatedly will force, if there are still any people in the movement left who haven't really thought that through, it, it will force them to. Um and um, um, so I think that that it, that it just made everything real. It made people think about the actual goals and consequences of what they're advocating. Um, and it, it means that the only people left are the serious people who are basically willing to give up their lives for it. I mean, and that is a small group of people. Uh, last question before we end the question we always end the podcast with. What are our three books you've read maybe while, while doing this project on the alt-right or, or not that have influenced you that you think are great that that you would recommend to the audience? 
I think one of the things that I go back to a lot is um, a book that influenced me very much when I was in college, um, Freud's Civilization and Its Discontents. I sort of reread it when I was uh, writing this and um, that had a big, really big influence on the way that I see things because it deals with taboos uh, and the role that taboos have in being part of the fabric of civilizations and... Um, uh, you know, it it allowed me to kind of make to have a critique of the taboo breaking element of uh, of the old right and to see why why it was dangerous. I suppose. Let me see what else. Whitney Phillips' uh, book on trolling. Uh, it's called "This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things." It has quite a different take than me, but it's a very good piece of scholarship, and it's uh, it it gave me something to kind of. Um, you know, if, if there was anything I disagreed with in it, it gave me something to uh, work against, I suppose. But it, it's a very good um, place to start if you if you want to find out the background kind of of all these cultures. I would say also possibly Evgeny Morozov's uh, The Net Delusion. I think it had a different title at one point. But that kind of, um, I suppose, sceptical view of some of the the more utopian uh, or the cyber utopianism, as he calls it, which kind of gained prominence, particularly when I started studying all these cultures, like uh, when I was studying them, it was the Occupy moment and, and Anonymous were kind of big and everything was about, you know, being politics being like networked and being sort of like bringing Internet style politics into real life and so on. And as I say at the end of the book, you know, now Internet style politics are coming into real life and it, it's not pretty, you know. Uh, so I think um, Morozov's book sort of stayed with me and uh, and and influence gave me that kind of uh, more of a skeptical view of those things. Angela Nagel, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Angela Nagel. Her book, again, is Kill All Normies. Uh, I very much recommend it. It's a, it's a good, quick read and, and very interesting. Um, thank you to all of you. Thank you to my engineer, Riyad Shawi, my producer, Jillian Weinberger. The Ezra Klein Show is on the Vox Media Podcast Network, and we'll be back next week. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder. But you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.